We are coming to the end of the first half of the uh, of the book of Acts. Uh, we have just finished up Acts chapter 12, and that puts us at a great chapter break, because really Acts is broken up into two sections. Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12 is section number 1, and then 13 through 28 is the second uh, section of Acts. And we're going to stop for uh, our summer break right here here where we're at. What a great time to end, and we're finishing up in our small groups here. And one of the things that has taken place is we have seen what God's great commission for his church was, is that they would go and be witnesses in places like Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And we've seen that in these first 12 chapters of the book. We've seen the ministry really take root in Jerusalem. But then we saw people like Philip and and Stephen and even Peter start reaching out into uh, Samaria. But then we also have seen now some of the start of the uttermost parts of the world. But we're going to leave that until the fall. And so what I want to do this morning is do kind of a recap of where we've been. For those that are wondering where we're going to go in the future, for our summer series, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be looking all throughout the summer at the different biographies of these great and great men and women who lived by faith and how God used them. We're going to call the series Heroes. And look how God took ordinary people and used them to do extraordinary things and how God can do the same thing through us even today. Uh, but today I want to review. And what I want to do is I, in essence, want to stop and, and call a time out for a team meeting. A team meeting to kind of remember where we've been, what we have been called to, and maybe hopefully take some time to understand where God may be leading us in the future. To do so, I want to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8 this morning. It's the key verse of all of the entire book of Acts. Many of you who have been in the church for a long time, many of you who have studied the Bible for a long time, know this verse. But it's the verse that Jesus gives, because Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he himself, if you will, calls a team meeting with the eleven. And he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And what we have seen is God's promise has been true. And we are a byproduct of the greatest movement that has ever taken place. God, Jesus, was right. And we have a part in that unfinished work. And we're going to spend some time this morning talking about the work that God has given us. But let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for what your word means to us. We thank you for what your word meant to the early church and how they took your word, your gospel, and they shared it without apology. They shared it with boldness. They shared it amidst great difficulties. And Lord, I pray that they will serve as an example for us. Lord, that you would use us to do that as well. That we would be bold that we would be willing by faith to take your word to places we never thought we would. Father, I pray you would fill us with your spirit in a profound way that might change us from being a timid, change us from being lackluster in our walk with you and be willing in all vibrancy to obey you no matter the cost. Thank you, Lord, for gathering your disciples and giving them this commission. And in turn, Lord, as we'll learn today, not just giving it to them, but giving it to us. Because the work that they started is not finished yet. And we today take up that mantle. And we now move in our day and in our generation where you have planted us, Lord, so that we might be your witnesses to the people around us. We love you and give you all the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. In the world of sports, there are times and moments where a timeout is needed. A timeout is something that can change the course of a game. It can calm nerves. 
It can allow a team to catch its breath. A timeout is an opportunity for a coach to seemingly try to reset the game towards their advantage. It allows them to plan for the next chapter, if you will, or the next couple minutes of the game. Timeouts have played pivotal parts in some of the biggest games and sporting events in history. And most of the time, timeouts are called by the coach. But there are days and there are games and there are events so big, so important, that sometimes God, with his celestial hands, has to form a T and say, timeouts. It was 2016. Cleveland, Ohio. Araldis Chapman, the reliever, had just given up a home run that had broken your pastor's heart in the eighth inning. Raji Davis, I don't think is a believer or ever can be a believer, hit a two-run home run to tie a game that the Cubs had in hand. Once again, Cubs Nation believed that they surely were cursed. Another 108 years would go by, they thought, before we would ever taste victory. But then something amazing happened, as if our God was cheering for our team. God would call a timeout. A timeout that would allow something very amazing to take place. I was given about a year ago a book by someone here in the church by an author named Tom Verducci. It was called The Cubs Way, and it chronicles the World Series run for the Cubs. And this is how he put that moment in history. Rain. 17 minutes of rain. Not in torrents and sheets, but just too hard and too much to play baseball. It was almost midnight. Joe West, the crew chief umpire, ordered plays stopped and the field to be covered. The Cubs began walking back to the clubhouse. Their heads dropped and their faces blank. It was the look of a team that knew something bad had happened to it. The Cubs blew a three-run lead, four outs away from their first World Series title in 108 years. And now they would have to try to win an extra-inning World Series Game 7 as a road team. Something, let's just take this in. I think I'm going to cry. Something <laughs> that has never been done before. Guys, weight room. It won't take long, the strong voice that pierced the quiet belonged to Hayward, who had struggled to hit all year after signing a $184 million contract. Woo! It's a lot of money. Who began the World Series on the bench and who was hitting 106 for the postseason. Hayward was calling a players-only meeting. Directly behind the visiting dugout, a progressive field is a weight room about 50 feet long and 20 feet wide. One by one, the Cubs traipsed in. When we got in, first baseman Anthony Rizzo said the mood was definitely down. All of us were just kind of pacing, and then Jason starts speaking. Hayward began, I know some things have happened tonight you don't like. At first, I was afraid it was going to be negative, catcher David Ross would say later. And I thought this was nothing any of these young players needed to be hearing. But it wasn't that at all. We're the best team in baseball, and we're the best team in baseball for a reason, Hayward said. Now we're going to show it. We play like the score is nothing, nothing. We're going to stay positive and fight for our brothers. We're going to stick together, and we're going to win this game. Other players began to speak up. Keep grinding, Chappie, we're going to pick you up. Speaking of closer, Araldus Chapman, who had given up the game-tying home run. This is only going to make it better when we win. And with that short speech, our whole viewpoint and perspective changed, Chris Bryant said. The darkness over us suddenly lifted. Right then I thought, we're winning this game. The entire delay took only 17 minutes. But a different team came out of the weight room from the one that had entered it. The players returned to the dugout and Cub Nation would experience the greatest turn of events and experience the sweet taste of victory. A team meeting 
changed everything. We could just close in prayer. (laughs) In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is the middle of Jesus' team meeting for his disciples. For the last 40 days, Jesus has been walking and talking and eating and speaking about the kingdom of God 40 days after his resurrection. And during that time, there had been a multiplicity of responses from his disciples. But now, as those 40 days were coming to an end, Jesus began to talk about leaving again. And they all knew what that meant. The last time Jesus left, everything fell apart. Even the great leader Peter would disown Jesus three times. They all went running for their lives. And now Jesus again says, I'm going to go. And every alarm in the disciples should have gone off. We are not equal to this task, Jesus What makes you think we are able to accomplish the work you have? And Jesus responds amidst that team meeting of 11 disciples and Jesus, these men that were closer to him than anyone else. And Jesus utters words that would change everything. I don't know how long Jesus' team meeting went, But Luke doesn't paint a very long picture. And what Jesus says is, listen, I am going to give you power. I'm going to give you the strength. I am literally, in the Greek language, going to clothe you with power. So that you will change the world with my message. And those men in the next short days before them, would embark on the greatest movement that the world has ever seen. And you and I, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the globe, are singing and praising and praying and preaching and living in light of and receiving the joy from the greatest message and might I add the same message that Jesus gave them. A team meeting can change everything. But when we start asking the question about our place in that, We, like the disciples, begin to come up with all manner of excuses on why we can't. Quite frankly, many of us have walked into this room today, and the last thing we want to hear is a rah-rah, let's-go-get-em speech. Like the cubs walking into a dugout, we are defeated. It seems as if every time we think we're ahead, we really aren't because something bad is going to happen. And maybe this week has been one of those weeks for you. You don't feel like you're a part of a winning team. Life is hard. The perpetual fight against temptation and sin has you defeated. Trials have come and they've taken away your joy. And the pain and burden of following God and living according to His precepts are a lot harder than anyone has ever told you. You're far away from victory. But this morning, as we close out the first chapter of the book of Acts, I want to have a team meeting. And I want to remind you of what our Savior and Lord articulated, which was true for the disciples, and it is true for every follower of Jesus Christ today. For the first, for the last 21 weeks, we have studied the first half of Luke's history, chronicling the fulfilled promises of God. That He has given His followers everything we need to accomplish the goals before us. Any good study of Acts always points to Jesus. 
And it points to the power of, of God made available through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we've seen God fulfill that promise of giving us everything we need by the Holy Spirit. And we need to take that and we need to leave this place excited, not walking around like those who are about to lose a game, but those who are going to win the greatest victory ever known to man. God has given, as the great hymn says, has given us the victory through Jesus Christ. So how do we begin to walk through this? Now, we need to understand three things this morning about this calling God has given from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And I want to give you uh, some encouragement this morning that we can walk away from. Number one, I want you to be assured. I want you to be assured that God empowers us for this work. That God empowers us for this work. Now, in Acts chapter 1, and we've talked about this already, but for the sake of review, Acts chapter 1, the people of God are pretty um, bewildered about the next steps that Jesus has for them. They've been bewildered, quite frankly, the entire time. They have not understood what Christ's mission was. They haven't understood their part in the mission. And now Jesus says, I'm going to go and be with my Father. And this isn't going to be a three-day journey. There's going to be some time. And while I'm gone, I've got a job for you to do. Every once in a while, when I'm going for a long day being away from my home, I will give my sons duties, jobs to do. And I'll say, okay, before I get back, I want you to clean your room. I want the bathroom clean. Maybe I want the, the grass mowed. And, and it usually is an hour of work for an eight-hour day. Jesus is far more demanding. Jesus says, hey guys, I'm going to take off, and I want you to change the world. And I wonder if those disciples were sitting there going, hey, that's a pretty tall task, Jesus. And notice what he says. He says, hey... I'm going to go, and I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they could have said, oh, that's, that's not bad. Kind of like my sons, you know, clean your room. Okay. But then it kept going. And Judea. Ugh. And Samaria. You kidding me? And to the uttermost parts of the world. Now, I want you to remember that these 11 disciples who had been given this calling only spoke Hebrew. And that Jesus wants them to go change the world where there are other languages being spoke, spoken. This, this commission that God is going to give, these Hebrew men have never traveled more than 50 miles from their homeland. And he's saying, you're going to reach the ends of the earth? If I had been one of the disciples, I would have thrown a yellow flag. Jesus, there is no way we're going to be able to accomplish this. I wonder if there were, and Luke doesn't tell us it, but I wonder if there were excuses that were starting to come out from the apostles. i got to stay close to mom. I don't travel well. I don't speak well in crowds. I don't have the personality like you do, Jesus. I'm not gifted enough. I don't know what I'll say. I don't work well with cross-cultural ministry. And the excuses could have gone on and on and on. But Jesus gives no room for excuses. Jesus says, you will do this as if it was already done. And let's remember, when Jesus says something, it already is done. Amen? And so he says, you're going to change the world. And you're going to reach the far-flung places of the world. And you're going to do so. And it's already done. You just need to be faithful in that process. And I'm here to tell you this morning that so many of us, when we hear that we're called to take the gospel to a world that needs it, what we will do is we will make excuses upon excuses upon excuses. Well, I'm not like 
Pastor Tim or, or small group leader so-and-so. I don't have their personality. I don't have their gift. I don't speak well in front of crowds. And, and I don't have that kind of gifting. And, and, and I don't have the, the faith of that missionary that we just prayed for in New Guinea. I, I don't have that ability. And so what I'm doing is I am rendering myself obsolete. I'm rendering myself exempt from the command of God. But I want you to notice this morning that Jesus gives no room for exemptions. Jesus gives no room for you to opt out of this. And notice why. First of all, this calling is specific in nature. The first word there that he articulates in verse, second word, sorry, in verse 8 is, but you... I did a Greek study of this word in the original language, and you means you, 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 you in the back, you the one sleeping in the chairs, you, right? It means me, it means you. If you are a Christ follower, this calling is for you. Now you say, wait a minute, he's talking to the apostles, how could he be talking about me? Two reasons. Number one, he says, you will receive power, okay? Well, who is the you that received power? Ten of the 14 times that Luke speaks about the filling of the Holy Spirit, he is talking about non-apostolic individuals. Does that make sense? So when people got filled with the Holy Spirit, 10 of the 14 times that Luke records it is people who weren't a part of the 11 who Jesus is talking to. They are random people. They are no-named people. They are people who are non-Jews. They are people who didn't walk with Jesus when he was on earth. They were people who never did miracles. They were people like you and I. And so number one, we see the power that Jesus promises isn't just given to those people that are in that room at that moment. But it's given even today where people, I heard this week of a story of a congregation member here who talked about her, her experience of being filled by the Spirit in a powerful way that she looks back even to this day of that moment assuring her that God has a plan and purpose for her to serve in her generation. God wants to fill people with His Spirit. He didn't just fill 11 but he fills every one of us, of course, at salvation, but also in the new and f- awesome ways in moments afterwards. So the power is available to us, therefore the promise is for, or the command is for us. Number two, what they were called to do wasn't completed. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to go to the extents of the world. And while the first church did that with great obedience, they did not complete the task. There are still today people groups that are untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus gave them a task that he said you would finish, the you means it wasn't just for the apostles... But because we have the same filling of the Holy Spirit, and because the task is still, as we write on the corner of our screen there, unfinished, we, the you of the passage, still have a job to be done. You and I are called to be great evangelists for the faith where God has planted us. To further the gospel, whether in our home or in our communities or in our workplaces, or if God might allow, to the ends of the earth. Notice the next thing that we see. It demands God's strength. How were they going to do it? Jesus had already told them, apart from me, you could do nothing. So that Guys are sitting there listening to Jesus, and they're like, okay, wait a minute, you're going to go away again, and they're going to watch him with their own eyes ascend into heaven. And angels are going to say, hey, he's not coming back, but he will at the end of this age. And he'll come back just as he was lifted up, and I'll go and do the work he's given you to do. But how are they going to do it without him? Notice he says, I'm going to give you power. I'm going to give you power. The power is the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And that power was going to enable us to do everything that God had called us to. When Alfred Nobel, I guess it's Albert Nobel, uh, discovered a new and incredibly powerful explosion, explosive uh, device, he looked for a word that would, in, in a nutshell, explain it all. And he had an apprentice, an intern, if you will, who was uh, very well knowledgeable in the Greek language. And he says, the Greeks have a word, Mr. Nobel, for what you're talking about. Dunamis. He says, I like that. He says, where we get our word dynamic from. And Nobel then coined a word that we would connect with explosive power for all of time afterwards, dynamite. Jesus says, I'm going to give you dunamis. Dynamic, explosive power. A power that would be seen throughout the book of Acts. A power that would enable men, feeble men, to speak with boldness. The same Peter who can't speak within uh, the confines of a conversation with a servant girl on the night that Jesus was arrested, in Acts chapter 2, will speak before thousands of his kinsmen and tell them with boldness that they have murdered Jesus and that God in his mercy has given an opportunity for them to come to repentance and that they should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He would do it in chapter 2 of Acts. He would do it again in chapter 4 of Acts. And then we see, well, you're like, well, but Peter got that power. Well, one of the guys that wasn't in that room when Jesus gave that power was Stephen. And Stephen's a man who comes along in Acts chapter 7, and he too, in the same power, and in the same spirit, the same dunamis, the same dynamite that Peter was given by God, Stephen was given, and he preached a message that knocked people's socks off. And God wants to give us that kind of power. You say right away, well again, I, I don't have that ability. I don't have oratorical uh, skills. I, I don't speak with that kind of, of eloquence. Well remember, remember one of the greatest spokesmen for God was a stammering, stuttering man named Moses. And God says, don't worry about it, I'll put the words in your mouth. And many of us have no idea of the opportunities that we are missing because we hide behind an excuse that we don't speak really well. Do you think that God is sitting up in heaven, biting his fingernails, going, I really hope so-and-so doesn't talk? Oh, please don't be my spokesperson because, man, I wish I could help them. I'm just up here handcuffed. I'm unable to, to give. No. God says, listen, you're my child. I've, 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 I've uh, saved you from your sins. And now I've given you this calling to accomplish this job. And he says, listen, if we'll take him at his word, he says, I'll give you all that you need. One of the greatest phrases that has served me well as a pastor is that God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the cult. And a lot of us are waiting for our credentials of speaking the gospel, and God says, go and do it. I'll take care of the qualifications as you go. I'll give you what you need. And how many of us have done that in impossible situations where we've asked the Lord to give us a word, and God has, and God has used that in powerful ways. He gives us this dunamis power to be able to speak on his behalf. But notice also, he gives us this dynamite power to be able to endure suffering for the glory of God. And we see that again in the first 12 chapters of Acts. Terrible things happen. Stephen, who's proclaiming one moment, is being killed the next. And all the while, all he can do amidst his suffering is forgive those who are killing him. We see this with Peter. 
We see this with the death of James over and over again. The ability amidst suffering to show the power of God at work. And some of us need that dynamite power right now. Some of us need that dynamite power to endure the struggles that we are facing. And God wants to give that to you. He wants to clothe you with it. He wants to wrap you in it. This power to endure suffering and hardships for His glory and for our good. He gives us strength. It's God's strength. We can't accomplish this task on our own. Number three, notice, we are guaranteed success. We are guaranteed success. Scholars will ask this question all the time. Was Jesus speaking a word of prophecy or a word of command? Was he as a true prophet saying, listen, I look forward into uh, the future and I see the work you guys are going to do is going to be successful. And I would say, yes, he does. God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And Jesus is aware of that and Jesus knows that. Jesus knew they were going to be successful. The omniscient God would have never sent them on the journey to fail. So by Jesus saying you're going to do this is a word that guarantees we will be successful in our endeavor. But it's also a word of command. And this word of command comes with a promise. If you are faithful, I will give you success. Success in the way that my gospel work will not come back void. Does that success mean everyone will believe? No. And we see that in the book of Acts over and over again. Some, like Simon the Magician, will say as we studied, I believe one moment, and then seize the the Spirit's power as a mechanism to earn money. And he thinks it can be bought as a tool for his trade. We will see that numerous people, when they hear the gospel, will not accept it, but in fact it enrages them. We will see apostles die. We will see followers of Jesus Christ be put to death. How can this be successful Because with the martyr's blood, the gospel has gone on, and it has grown, and it has multiplied. And it has multiplied in such an amazing way that from the 11 who heard the message, now billions of people throughout human history have accepted that message and walked according to that message and received the mercy from the one who proclaimed it so that they might have eternal life in Christ. We are guaranteed success. So, we need to recognize this morning, we have some assurances in this. Number two, notice we need to be attentive. We need to be attentive. God employs us as his witnesses. You are my witnesses. The word witness there is the Greek word martus. Martus. And it was a judicial word. It was a word that in Jesus' time and culture would have totally made sense. It was a very, um, uh, it was a word that was used very, very often in, in the culture of the day. It was a judicial term, meaning it was a courtroom term. A martus was one who spoke in a legally binding way as one who had seen something or been a part of something. And so I want to break down this word witness for you to help you understand what Jesus is calling us to. First of all, a martus is one who encountered a situation. It is one who has encountered a situation. If you've ever been a witness to something, whether it's a crime or an accident or or an event of some sort, you've been there. You were there and with your senses you were able to sense it, whether through sight, sound, smell, hearing. You've, You've experienced it. And these men had experienced something. 
They had experienced, first of all, the life change of the words of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, we see Luke says, I've written all about what Jesus did and taught. They had experienced that. But they had experienced more. They had experienced the uh, miracles of Jesus. They had seen Jesus take cripples and allow them to be whole again. They had allowed uh, demon possess. He had seen demon possessed people be made uh, of a full mind again. They had seen sick raised up again, and they had seen the dead alive again. They had experienced his power over the storm. They had experienced his power over all manner of things. They had seen it. John says later on in 1 John, we've seen it with our own eyes. But what they experienced was even greater than all of that, was that they had seen Jesus die, and with their own eyes they had seen him on the third day raised from the dead. And they knew it. And John in 1 John 1, 4 says, we've touched him after his resurrection. We ate with him. We were with him. This is not a dream. This is not a fable. This is the real deal. We are his witnesses. More than a dozen times in the book of Acts, we see this phrase, witnesses. We were his martuses. We were his witnesses. We experienced this. We encountered a situation. Number two, notice it is one who encounters a situation and embraces it as a fact. You're called into the courtroom. And the courtroom judge says, all right, what have you witnessed? You were there on Route 47 in Bliss Road when the accident happened. What took place? And you start saying, well, I don't know if I saw it in a dream or or if I experienced a, a trance. Or if it was just a figment of my imagination, you start talking that way, on the witness stand, the judge will say, get out. We're not here to hear what you dreamed about. We're not here for you to talk about what you think you saw. And so a martus is one who embraces this as fact. I know what I saw. I know what I experienced. And it happened, and it happened just as I'm about to tell you. So these apostles had embraced what they knew of Jesus as facts. But notice it doesn't just stay with them. A martus, a witness, shares their experience with others. You cannot be a witness if you don't tell people what you've experienced. Does that make sense? So listen, you again, you're in the, the courtroom. And you're sitting in that, that chair and... And the attorneys are going to start to talk with you as a witness. And they say, tell us what you saw on that day when that accident happened at the corner. And you're like, "Mm mm-mm. you got to open your mouth. No. Did you see the cars crashing into there? Not saying. Did you uh, uh, see the injuries that took place? I can't say. You have rendered yourself a non witness right so is that easy good deduction right a witness has to be one who has encountered a situation embraced the facts as it being true and then is one who shares it with others the disciples there are the 11 the early church and for us today if we are unwilling to share how we have experienced jesus we are not witnesses We are living in contradiction to the very command God had given as one of his last commands for his people. Be my witnesses. We've got to share it with others. Finally, we have to be able to endure cross-examination. The word martus doesn't look like witness at all, right? Usually the... uh, derivative of a word will look like where it comes from and and witness and martus doesn't doesn't look like the same but you know there's an english word that does martyr martyr it's the same word martus we use in our english version words martyr and a martyr is one now think about this this is how cool words are 
A martyr is one who speaks of something, proclaims something, and endures cross-examination from others. Who are doing what? Who are denying that you've encountered a situation. Who are denying that is a fact. Who are denying that you have had the experience or that you should be able to be given the ability to share that experience with others. And they'll do everything in their power to trip up your story. They'll do everything in their power to shut you up from speaking it. And what we see in the early church is it started with low-level persecution in the book of Acts. Some bullying. Then it moved to some imprisonment. Then it moved to mob rule where people picked up stones and, and stoned Stephen. To which then in Acts chapter 12 we see we're just going to cut off their heads. And so what we have as witnesses is, is we need to recognize as martuses, if you will, we have to be willing to endure cross-examination from people because when we share our experience of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives, people are going to be like, no way. And it's going to start out small and be like, what are you talking about? You're crazy. That didn't happen. And you'll be like, but yes, it did. And then they're going to start saying, you know, we don't want you uh, to keep telling people about this, so keep your mouth shut. And if you can't, there will be consequences. And a witness is one who endures to the end. Oh, how we need in our day churches full of martusis. It is sad that we live in a country so free and with so much opportunity and yet the one thing that we have been given by our government as a constitutional right is the freedom of speech. We hide, not because they're going to cut off our heads, not because they're going to imprison us, not because they're going to uh, take away all of our rights, but because we might get a little feedback, or we might lose the opportunity to sit at the popular kids' table, or we might be viewed as a weirdo that the devil has shut us up and he's like i got so many more bags in my tricks that i had to or tricks in my bag that i had to use with the early church but this 21st century church all i gotta do is do a little boo 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 and everybody shuts up oh how we need witnesses who will go out into their communities and into their workplaces and into their world who will be willing to share what Christ has done in their lives and be willing to endure whatever comes their way. When we do that, the world will be changed, as it was in the book of Acts. So we need to be attentive. Are we the witnesses that God has called us to be? Finally, number three, we need to be active. We need to be active. And we need to be active because God is extending His reach through us. Some time ago in one of our small group studies, I quoted a, a Scottish pastor who lived a century ago. His name was William Arnott. And, and he said this, To every Christian, two things must be said. You have need of Christ, and Christ has need of you. Now, I got some feedback from some people, and, and I, get, I get it, that would say Christ has no need of us. Amen. Absolutely. It's not like God's like, who's going to fix up this world? I got nobody. What am I going to do, right? We all get that. But for some reason, God has seen it fit to leave us here on earth to accomplish one thing that we can't do in heaven. Now let's think about this for a moment. Fellowshipping is not our number one priority here on earth. It is a priority, but it's not the number one one because we will spend all of eternity as Christians in heaven doing what? Fellowshipping. Worship. 
is not our number one priority as Christians because worship will continue to go forth. Is it an important priority? Yes, it is an important priority. But it's a priority that will continue to go on throughout all the ages for all of eternity. Talking with God. Prayer needs to be a priority in this age. But it is something that we will continue to communicate with God for the rest of eternity. Preaching. Preaching is something that is important. But preaching, especially in what I'm doing right now, is going to go on as the Lord uh, continues to reveal Himself in all of eternity. Brothers and sisters, I can only think of one thing that we won't be able to do in heaven as Christians that we can do here on earth, and that is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with lost people. And here's why. Because when we get to heaven, there will be no lost people to witness to. And so we need to take the opportunity. Now listen, that doesn't mean we stop doing all the praying and all the preaching and all the worshiping and all of that. Don't, don't go there, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But we need to recognize one of the things that God has left us here for. Because it, listen, had evangelism not been a need for us to do here on earth, then God would have, the moment we got saved, just evacuated us out of here, right? But he says, hey, I've got a job for you. I'm going to use you as my hands and feet to reach out to the world who needs it. Now, there are a couple things about this reach I want to make you aware of. Number one, this reach might surprise you. The early church experienced some surprises. Surprise number one. That which they thought they were and what they became were two very different things. When Jesus shared that what they were going to do, I'm going to speculate for a moment, but I believe it to be true based on their own testimony later on, is that they didn't think they would be able to do it. No way, Jose. It's not going to be able to happen. If Peter had been told all the things he was going to do in Acts chapter 1, I'm going to believe that Peter would have said there's no way. I'm not that guy. I can't do that. And one of the things that God surprises us with is that He enables us to do things we never would have thought. Listen, I I am a key witness, martus to this. If you had talked with anyone, including my mother, and said... During my teenage years, that boy is going to pastor a congregation. My mom would have grabbed at her heart and fallen over dead. I once told my Sunday school class teacher, when he told me to quiet down, I retorted back, one day people will listen to me. And he says, why? And he says, because I will preach, and I will teach, and I will do these great things. I had no plan of doing it. I just wanted to tell the teacher something. To which the very witty teacher said, the only way you will ever be a preacher is in the Illinois State Penitentiary. Okay? So when I say that nobody saw this coming... Nobody saw this coming, except for God, right? And we need to recognize that God has a storyline for us that will surprise us. You are way more gifted than you ever give yourself credit for. You are way more filled with the power of the Holy Spirit than maybe you even recognize right now. And God wants to write a story with your life. But you've got to be willing by faith to take the first step. And that's what the church did. They were surprised by who they had become. Number two, they were surprised by who they had to reach. The disciples were thinking, hey, I'm going to reach Jewish people. That's okay. I I, I speak Hebrew. I know Jewish customs. I I, I know the the Jewish jokes. I I know the Jewish festivities. I got this. This is easy. And Jesus says, listen, for the first couple years, you're going to do it. We're going to do a trial phase with the Jewish people. We'll get you kind of your feet underneath you. But then we're going to send you to the Samaritans. The Samaritans. No. 
We're going to send you to the Gentiles. No way. I don't even like them. And what did he do? He stretched them from Judea into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And he breaks down racial divides and he breaks down prejudices and he breaks down uh, superiority complexes and he breaks them down. And, and listen, sometimes we might be surprised by who we're reaching out to. Now listen, a church in Sugar Grove has grown into a place that now worships in five campuses. And in one of our campuses, it speaks a language that I don't even know. My Spanish teacher would have told you that. I got nothing. Keith goes there and visits with Pastor Nico. And he says, I don't know a word that he says, but they're changed by Jesus. And that's all that matters, right? They're changed. And then we go upstairs, and it's like the UN there. And languages are being translated and, and songs are being sung in different languages. And listen, Village Bible Church is being stretched because God is bringing the nations to us. And if we say, no, Lord, I can't go there, then there's a problem. And the early church models for us what faithful ministry like that looks like. It is going to surprise us. Listen, it's going to stretch us. And so what is a life that follows the Great Commission going to look like? What is a church that follows the Great Commission going to look like? It's going to look like one that's uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. The early church enjoyed lots of great things, but they also enjoyed a lot of hardships, a lot of problems, a lot of logistical situations, a lot of spiritual oppression. They experienced a lot of heartache that produced crying and sadness. <laughs> Right? And it's going to stretch us and it's going to be uncomfortable. And so listen, if there's some uncomfortability with you in your Christian life, God's at work, right? And if you feel a bit uncomfortable here at church, that's okay. Because God is at work. And here's why we're okay to be surprised and okay to be stretched. Because God uses this message and our lives to save many. We're going to reach the world. It's going to save more than we know. The ministry that you are living out in your neighborhoods has a, has a, a saving power more than you know. The impact of this church is saving more people than we will ever know. And there will be a day where God will gather us together and we will see the great multitude of people and we will be fully aware of the impact that God has given. But in order for us to do this, like that team that was in game seven, we need to take the words and the assurances of what we've been told in this team meeting. And we need to leave this place a different people. We need to leave this place with different priorities. We need to leave this place with different viewpoints and a different understanding of our current situation. And we need to have the confidence to recognize and know we've already won the game. So let's get out there and let's do the work that God has called us to.